This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives, some interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. So we'll talk to you soon. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Belle Boggs on the line. Her new book is The Art of Waiting on Fertility, Medicine, and Motherhood. Belle, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me. So this book is based on your own experience with your spouse and dealing with doctors around infertility. So give us a little bit of the background there. Well, um, the book started with an essay that I wrote for Orion magazine. My editor or an editor at Orion approached me and asked if I had anything that I wanted to pitch to them. And I had this idea that I wanted to, because I'm, I'm a fiction writer, and so I had this idea that I wanted to start writing more essays. And I told her that I wanted to write something about infertility, and I wanted to write something about reconciling my sense of um, the treatment of infertility with um, an appreciation of the natural world. And I'm sure that it all sounded very convoluted to her because I told her that I wanted to write about marmosets. And I, I, I actually, I think I told her that I wanted just to write about non-human primates and how they might in, experience infertility. And I wanted to write about writers and I wanted to write about my life as a writer and I wanted to write about IVF. And very gamely, That's a she lot. agreed. It is. It's a lot to kind of cram into one essay. And she agreed to work with me. And um, so over the course of the next several months, I worked on the essay. I, um, that first essay, I interviewed um, researchers at Duke University. I interviewed um, gorilla keepers at the North Carolina Zoo. I um, reread some of the sections of Tilly Olson's silences that are about childlessness and waiting and the anguish that comes with childlessness, involuntary childlessness. And, uh, and I also experienced my own um, first set of fertility treatments or of kind of slightly stepped up in, infertility treatments. I was doing um, uh, intrauterine insemination at the time and, um, and, and not successfully. So I was um, experiencing those things and, and the writing of the essay was really very helpful to me because it would be some time before I would um, have the opportunity to try IVF because it's so expensive and it was not covered by um, my health insurance. And I live in one of the um, states, you know, most of most only 15 states um, cover or provide um, mandate that that insurance providers um, cover infertility, infertility at all, and my state, North Carolina, is not one of them. So, you know, I, I knew that it, I couldn't afford IVF, I couldn't afford more advanced treatment, and that it may, might be some time before my husband and I decided what we were going to do. So writing the essay helped me see that um, this world and this question about how people build families, all the different paths there are to parenthood or to resolve resolving to live without children, to living child-free, um, that that was really interesting to me and something that I wanted to write about. So, um, so that's how it started. So you discuss uh, Plan B family making. What does that mean for you? Yes, so I did not um, coin that term. That is a phrase that I found in um, Martha Ertman's wonderful book, um, Love's Promises, um, which is, she's a legal scholar, and it's a book about um, the value of contracts in family making. And um, she writes about her own experience with Plan B 
um, family building. And how she describes it is that um, it's just, it's not meant to describe um, a second choice or a lesser choice, but instead um, just a more unusual way of building a family. So it could be through adoption or it could be through um, Ertman is gay and has a child with a close friend and then later, I believe, was married. And so they share the care of the son, the um, genetic father, um, who is a close friend and the father of her child, Ertman, and um, her wife. So arrangements like that or IVF or other kinds of assisted reproduction and different kinds of adoption, these are all categories of Plan B family making in her book. And I thought that was a great phrase and a great um, way of describing um, what this sort of scattered community of people does, because that's one thing that I did find as I researched the book and, and met new wonderful people was that, you know, it, it did make it feel a little bit like a community. Infertility, which was my experience, is really lonely and or it can be very lonely. It was very lonely for me at first. And um, it's not that I want anyone else to have a complicated path to whatever family life they desire, but knowing that other people had complicated paths and yet they um, successfully eventually um, achieved families um, that, you know, were wonderful beyond their wildest dreams, that was really exciting to me and encouraging to me. And, you know, in the time that I was really struggling and was attending a support group with my husband, a resolve support group, it, it was very helpful to be up with around other people who were in the same place. Can I ask how long you were waiting? It was five years before we conceived yeah. our daughter through IVF. And I, I know people who waited much longer. It's a long time, and especially for those who do wait longer. You, you talk about loneliness and that point of childlessness. Uh, you mentioned Tilly Olson. Talk a little bit about what Tilly wrote about and then your own experience of, on that? Well, I think that um, that she writes a lot about the loneliness of trying to be a writer while you are also balancing parenthood, motherhood, and needing to make a living and um, having to work a job, having to care for a child, and also um, having to um, try to write what you need to write. And that's a lonely place, too, because you're so busy that, um, you know, you may not have time for the, the other things that sustain you. And I definitely identify with that now. But in a chapter that was um, especially meaningful to me when I was um, trying to get pregnant in The Damnation of Women, she writes about how, in fact, um, it, it, it took a while before we started to come across narratives by women writers um, who were longing to have children or expressed at certain points in their lives a longing for children um, that was not fulfilled. And so she writes particularly beautifully and quotes beautifully from Virginia Woolf's diaries. And you know, it's, I think, um, you know, it's both sad and powerful and uplifting at the same time to read that um, Woolf experienced the same periods of, of doubt and um, and anguish, right? Um, you know, I'm childless, um, uh, you know, not, um, you know, unmarried at, at one point and, um, you know, connecting that with, uh, I think she writes, childless, no writer, and, um, and compares herself at other points to her sister. And then later, um, when she was, um, I believe in the throes of writing the waves or she just com completed it. Um, she wrote, children are nothing to this. And I think that what's um, exciting about that is to think about the capacity that we have for finding something new um, to throw ourselves into to get satisfaction from um, you know, uh, the phrase that a lot of therapists use is post-traumatic growth. And that's, um, 
uh, you know, there are definitely, um, you know, Virginia Woolf's story is, a, is you know, ultimately a, a sad story in a lot of ways. But knowing, thinking about those moments of uplift, those moments of euphoria after writing, um, I think, you know, it was, it was, you know, just personally sustaining for me. I'm not, you know, I'm no Virginia Woolf, but that was a very sustaining thing to read. So you also get into um, some fictional depictions of infertility. What did you learn from reading those? Well, um, you know, one of the, um, I'm a, I was a K-12 teacher for a lot of years. And um, especially when I was teaching high school, I noticed that, right, especially because when I was teaching AP English, the whole time I was teaching AP English, I was in this process of fertility treatment. And I noticed that so many of the characters that we put in front of our, our students, um, they, so many of the female characters, the women characters in particular, um, are defined by their relationship somehow to children. So, you know, you read The Scarlet Letter and you think about Hester Prynne and you think about Pearl. Um, you know, you read, um, on the other hand, you read narratives of childlessness and characters who did not have children and they are, they all, they, many of them seemed in some ways um, deformed by what they lacked or that this childlessness was somehow transgressive. And um, that's not to say I don't love these works of literature. Some of them are my favorites. Macbeth, you think about the, the Macbeths and the mm. sort of bizarre um, pillow talk that they have about the, the child they would have had and how um, um, Lady Macbeth would have um, dashed him away if, um, if Macbeth had, ask, had asked her. Um, and then he tells her very excitedly, bring forth men children only. Um, and then you think about, or you think about, you know, Dickens and um, Miss Havisham in Great Expectations and, um, and just, you know, her, you know, hissing, you know, break his heart. And she's this, she's, you know, she's this transgressive character. Um, the, I think I write longest about, um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, not a play I really love. And, um, George and Martha and the way their imaginary child is understood. Um, and the way that the destruction of, um, of the imaginary is often understood as, um, as necessary. And for me at the time that I was reading that play or rereading that play and thinking about it with my students who actually had a very hard time understanding that the sun was not real at first and they, you know, had to read and reread it to, to figure that out. Um, because it is so bizarre to them that someone could carry on, you know, they're young and just the idea that an adult couple would carry on this fantasy life seemed, um, seemed very strange to them. So what I admired really was the imaginary life. And, um, and so, um, I thought about that. I thought also, you know, to be honest, I thought and wrote a little bit about my own work too, and how before I had, um, before I knew that I would have these problems, I um, had a character in a story in my first collection, Madap and I Queen, um, who is, it's a, a, a secondary character, but um, it's a character undergoing IVF. And, you know, I, I, Rose, I didn't get any of her, I didn't get her treatments right. And oh, no. I also, you know, I, I, I felt looking back that I used the condition as a way of expressing some um, stereotypical ideas about um, infertile women, um, the idea that they're they're um, self-centered or overly self-focused or um, brittle, and um, and I really regret that because you know I thought that I knew, and obviously I didn't. So now that you've gone through this experience, is it informing the fiction writing that you're doing now? Um, I. I guess a little bit. Um, I'm working on a novel now, and I do have a character in the novel who has had um, a number of miscarriages and is trying to write about it. And um, so it's a you know a pretty minor character, but um, thinking about how to um, 
you know, how to be sensitive and also truthful and how to, um, you know, not to use a character's characteristics or experiences to express something that is, um, you know, not, not true to the character. So, um, or, um, you know, I, I think it's hard to go about writing, especially writing fiction, being afraid that you're going to offend people. But I don't, you know, we don't want to do that. So, um, and I, I have thought too about how I might write about um, this personal experience that I've had in a fictional way sometime in the future, but I haven't resolved what I'll do about that yet. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Belle Boggs, author of The Art of Waiting, who's uh, getting into some detail about uh, fertility treatments. So um, tell us a little bit about how families deal with the costs of reproductive procedures and also with the emotional and physical trials that come with them. They're very invasive. They're very unpleasant. Right. That's a really good question. I suppose it's different for everyone. Um, I attended this support group for a couple of years and I saw, I think, a very wide range of experiences related to um, fertility treatment. Um, and it was interesting to see um, how the group grew and got smaller as people became pregnant and left the group because that was, of course, um, the way that it worked. When someone was, um, had a successful pregnancy, they would leave the group um, so that we could continue to talk in an open and um, kind of safe place about what we were going through. And so um, there were people who were um, who did have some coverage from their insurance companies, which, you know, that's the ideal. And there were people who did not. There were people who kept jobs that they hated because they had some coverage for fertility treatment. Mm. There were people who were successful after um, a few Clomid cycles. And there were people who had loss after loss and stayed with the group for a long time. Um, many of the people in my particular group, which I realize is a very small sample, were successful. And so I'm friends with um, several people I was in the group with for a while still. And um, in fact, our, ch- our children know each other. And, um, and so it's, you know, that's a particularly special relationship to me, um, because I remember very well, it seems very recent that um, these other women, um, just like me, we thought that we, you know, might not ever get here. So, um, so the other thing that you see people do um, as they are figuring out how to pay for fertility treatment in a state where that treatment cost is not mandated as something an insurance needs to cover. Some people will go out of state to um, get treatment that is less expensive. Some people will go out of state to do clinical trials. Um, we certainly all um, shared um, leftover medication. That's really common mm-hmm. in um, in fertility circles is that when you have you know, we take good care of our medication because we know it's really expensive um, and, you know, keep it refrigerated or in a cool place, a cool dark place, wherever it needs to be. And then if you have some leftover, um, you know, you offer it to the group. So that's that's pretty, and, you know, people can choose to do that or not choose to do that. Um, uh, that's, that's pretty common and it's understandable when you have um, a medical disease that's not covered by insurance. Um, for me and for my husband, we, um, as I said, we, our insurance did not cover IVF, which was the treatment that we needed. And so we bought a cost share plan. That's what it's called, I guess, you know, somewhat euphemistically. It's um, 
uh, I, I guess it's a different price depending on your age and your, you know, various health factors. Um, and sometimes you're not even eligible to do a cost share plan, but you pay um, a certain amount that will um, cover a certain number of tries. So for us, um, it was a little bit more than twenty thousand dollars for um, three fresh um, IVF cycles and then three um, frozen embryo transfers. And um, we chose this because um, even though it was very expensive and very hard to afford, we had to save a long time for to, to be able to afford it. Um, we were aware that it was very possible, very likely, in fact, that we would not get pregnant the first time and that we would, we wanted to feel that we could um, continue to treat this as if it's a disease and continue to try um, until our doctor felt that we should stop. And um, additionally, we felt very strongly and our, our doctor agreed that it would be um, safest if um, we chose single embryo transfer. And um, a single embryo transfer um, for a woman in my age group at the time that I was in the program, um, I was uh, 36 at the time of entry. Um, single embryo transfer has a slightly less, um, slightly lower ch chance of success. So if you only have one try, um, it's very um, tempting to transfer two embryos. I mean, I think we were, I think our doctor told us we were eligible to uh, transfer three. If we had transferred three embryos, I'd probably have twin, triplets. You know, that, that would, would have been a, a big possibility for me. And um, that, we know, is not the safest way um, to be pregnant. It's not the safest um, for the infants either, so for the babies. So um, so that was why we chose to, to do what we did. I recognize and um, write in the book that this is not an option that many people have. Um, infertility affects one in eight couples in the United States, but um, I think fewer than half seek any kind of treatment at all, and it's a really small group that can actually move on to IVF. Not everybody needs IVF, but many more people um, would do IVF if they had access to um, to that medical coverage. Um, for um, so um, another factor is we happen to live close enough in driving distance to a f um, fertility clinic. Um, we also happen to fit the demographics of um, uh, that fertility clinics advertise to. Um, I was getting regular care at an um, obstetrician gynecologist, so I could be referred to um, the fertility clinic when I needed um you know, more help than I was getting at the gynecologist's office. So that's not true for everyone. Some people have a hard time even just getting that first referral. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so that's something that I learned when I was researching the book. Let's talk about the cultural um, uh, ideals of what it is to be pregnant and, uh, and, and of parenthood and what they're supposed to be like and how that clashes with uh, going through uh, infertility. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think for many of us, it starts when we're really young. Um, we hear the stories of our own families. Um, for my um, students, um, I wrote that, um, and I, I have taught students of many different ages from first grade um, through high school, and now I teach college students. We don't really talk about this in my college and grad classes, but the high school and, and younger students would often talk about um, the families that they imagined, and they were often very close to the families that they grew up in. They wanted to have children about the same time that their parents had them. They want to have about the same number of children as are in their families, and um you know, this is not universally true, but it was very common. It was really noteworthy to me also because I identified with it. Um, I felt that way when I was younger. I thought that my life would be patterned like my parents in some ways, even though I had other plans to live um, farther away from home and to do different kinds of jobs than my parents do, um, that probably would have made having that same life pattern sort of difficult. 
so um, I think there's that kind of family cultural patterning. And then there's um, just so much, you know, what they call pronatal or, you know, that um, having children is wonderful and everyone needs to have children messaging that we get culturally everywhere. If you stand in line for, at the grocery store and you look at any of the, you know, trashy magazines, which are very appealing if you're standing in line, half of them or most of them have some, you know, is she pregnant celebrity or actually pregnant celebrity on the cover? We follow the pregnancies of celebrities and um, and royalty and are very interested in them. We have um, this, you know, a, a big set of um, rituals and celebrations, you know, as we should, but um, that can be painful for people who are going through infertility or people who even are at a place of not knowing what they want and might feel excluded um, by things like baby showers and gender reveal parties Mm -hmm. and and things like that. Um, And um, so we have all of, um, you know, we have all of that kind of messaging. And it, you know, if you do become pregnant, you continue to have the message that, you know, natural is the best. And, you know, everything I I went to a um, my husband and I went, we're really excited actually to take this birthing class at the hospital where we planned to have our baby. And, um, but we did not like the birthing class really at all. Um, and, um, part of the reason was because the instructor, um, talked so much about normal birth. And I realize that has a particular meaning in like the doula culture, culture, but the word normal is for many people kind of an alienating word. And, um, so this idea of normal birth and natural birth, and we watched a lot of really kind of harrowing natural births on film and I couldn't watch any of them without just immediately having these um, this involuntary crying response and all my friends who had gone through the same stuff that I had had the same thing we all just went to these separate birth classes because we were not pregnant at exactly the same time and sort of lived in different places we all went watched heard about normal birth watched these films and cried and um, not even because I felt sad just kind of tears came out of my eyes and it was you know sort of embarrassing and um you know, I I didn't have a natural birth, and I'm glad that I didn't because um, that wasn't um, what was safest for me. And also, um, you know, it's really it's really pretty painful. And um, I was very grateful by the time I had my epidural for um, getting it. And if I, you know, had it to do all over again, I would have gotten the epidural much earlier. Um, so. Um, there's that messaging too that continues. And I think there's this other um, message too, and it, you see it everywhere from fertility clinics even. They ha- often will advertise with the word miracle um, mm. somewhere on their web pages. And, you know, we talk about the miracle of birth and that pregnancy is a miracle. And, you know, if you think about miracles, that's not something that you're supposed to have a big hand in. You're not supposed to, um, uh, you know, miracle does not um, necessarily go hand in hand with choice and effort. It's something that happens to you. And that was really not my story, and it's not the story of a lot of people I know. Um, So, um, you know, I'm very, you know glad that I had the chance to go to that birth class. You know, I won't, I'm all the things that have happened to me since I've, um, you know, was lucky enough as I know many people are not, I was lucky enough to get pregnant. I'm very grateful for all the opportunities that I've had. Um, everything that I've had a chance to do, you know, as a pregnant person and then especially with my daughter, um, but I'm also very aware of the messaging um, that surrounds pregnancy, maternity, motherhood, and parenthood. My child was conceived through IVF, and uh, one of their nicknames is Science Baby, because <laughs> we cared so much about science being part of this that we were we were actually like really excited. We're going to do cool medical science. The idea of miracles really was very far away from our experience of that process. Yeah, that's wonderful. A friend of mine has a onesie that says, conceived with love and science. Oh, and um, I need it. 
So um, you talk uh, about you, you talked earlier about um, feeling a love of nature and feeling a little conflict maybe between that and and this sometimes harrowing experience of infertility what how did you end up reconciling those things well um so for the whole time we were trying to have children and um my pregnancy we lived um in the country in Chatham County near the Haw River and it's a really beautiful part of North Carolina and um, spending time, I grew up in the country also in Virginia and spending time outside and in nature and with and observing animals has always been just something that's just always been a part of my life. I can't even just say that it's comforting to me. It's just something that I do and that I enjoy. And we used to go on these walks every day to the river um, and we had um, a cross from this easement that my neighbors and I share um, by the river. There's a bald eagle nest, um, this really tall tree with um, a nest that's been there for um, all the, you know, 10 years we owned the house. And um, the bald eagle pair returns every year to the same nest. Um, they um, invariably in February would nest there and have one and often two new eaglets every year, which is a wonderful thing um, to observe, um, especially if you think about the history of bald eagles. And, you know, growing up as a kid, I thought, you know, bald eagles might become extinct. You know, they were endangered then. They're one of the few animals to make it off of the endangered species list. And, um, and our river is very populated now with bald eagles, but it starts, I mean, not for all of them, but for a lot of them in this nest, a lot of the eagles were born in this, you know, hatched in this nest. And, uh, and so we would go and watch them. And, um, I have a lot of strong memories of watching them while I was thinking, you know, so one day I'd be walking down and thinking, oh, I wonder if maybe I'm pregnant because I did this treatment or, you know, maybe this is going to be the month for me. And then the next day I would have gotten my period and I'm there again watching the eagles and thinking, well, no, not for me. So I think, you know, the the natural world is a world of mostly fertility. It was actually kind of hard to find examples in nature of infertility because there are just not as many. There are not many. So it's a world of, um, of fertility, necessarily so, and in the same way that you might see um, babies on the, you know, on the bus or um, out in the world or, you know, at the shopping center or wherever. In nature, if you spend a lot of time in nature, you're going to see, um, in the springtime especially, lots of baby animals. And um, it can feel, or it did for me, it felt for a while like this... Um, like this exclusive club that I would, would not join. Um, and not that, you know, bald eagles have any concept of me being in their club, but, um, uh, I, I think I reconciled it, um, just by, you know, thinking, for example, about the eagles themselves and how rare they used to be and how, I mean, for most people, they actually don't get to see a bald eagle every day if they want to. And I did have that good luck to live where I live, the chance to go down. And most of, most days in the spring, I could see one. And, um, you know, this incredible history that they've had. Then also thinking, too, about the brutality and um, kind of harrowing nature of the animal world. Um, one thing that a bald, e bald eagle parents will do sometimes is if they have two eaglets and one is... Um, one is a weaker eaglet, one e eaglet may kill the other, and the, the parents will not stop that from happening. Um, they're also, you know, big hunters and big scavengers. And so um, thinking about that sort of timeless, enduring, and sometimes harrowing animal world, um, somehow that was helpful to me. And um, just knowing that I was in a place where I could, could see... Um, uh, you know, we we're very we were very lucky that I don't live in um, the woods anymore. Um, we still have our, our little house, um, but um, I saw um, once a mother 
bobcat um, and her three bob kittens. She was teaching them to hunt in our yard or just kind of down the hill in the woods. And that was really one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. So um, I think there's just something very appealing and attractive about um, watching young animals and baby animals learn to do what they need to do in life. We've been talking with Belle Boggs, and you can find her book, The Art of Waiting, in stores right now. Belle, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Rose. And thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Hi, I'm Yvette Johnson, the author of The Song and the Silence. And you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got James Kwok on the line. His new book is Economism, Bad Economics and the Rise of Inequality. James, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you very much. So tell us about this book. What is bad economics? So economism is about the misuse of some ideas that come out of Economics 101. So if you've taken Economics 101 or if you have some idea about it, the main idea that people take away from it is that supply and demand operating in unregulated markets will produce the best of all possible worlds. And economism, the bad economics is the, is the simplistic application of this one idea to many, many realms of, of human life and public policy, from education to crime to healthcare to international trade and so on. And the book is about some of the consequences that happen when you try to apply just a little bit of economics to a very complex world. So, um, for example, uh, it, what are some examples of ways that people oversimplify uh, and try to apply this idea where it's not warranted? So I think one of the best examples to use is the, the example of the minimum wage. So the minimum wage has been a hot topic for the past few years because it's quite low. Uh, the federal minimum wage is essentially below the poverty line, and a number of states and cities are trying to increase the minimum wage. But one of the things you learn in Economics 101 very early on is that raising the minimum wage is bad because it creates unemployment. And the basic idea is that if you force people to pay more for labor than they would pay otherwise, you're just going going to reduce the amount of labor that people want to hire, which creates unemployment. And this can be shown very easily on a two-dimensional graph, which, as I said, you know, a college freshman learns within the first month of Economics 101, and it seems like a very simple argument. So a lot of what you hear in the press and from politicians about the minimum wage is that uh, raising the minimum wage is, is a nice idea and people mean well, but essentially it's just going to hurt poor people because it will increase unemployment. And I say this is a good example because Real labor economists, people who have studied more than you know one semester, people whose life is devoted to this, know that it's a much more complicated situation. And when you look at real-world examples and real-world data, it's very unclear whether raising the minimum wage has any effect at all on unemployment. So this is just an example of where you have actually what's a quite complicated uh, policy issue that can very easily be answered in just a couple of sentences by using this model from Economics 101. And that's essentially what the the anti-minimum wage side of the debate does. So, you know, we're talking about, you're talking both from, from Economics 101 and, and uh, various undergraduate classes to, to experienced professionals who've been practicing economics. How do these simplistic and maybe excuse me, misleading uh, economic models migrate, as you talked about in your book, from the undergraduate economics classes to, say, Wall Street or the White House. How is it that, that this, yeah. is, this is possible without, you know, these, these uh, more experienced economics, uh, uh, economists uh, 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 having their say? Well, I think there, there are two reasons for that, which uh, for the purposes of this um, conversation we might as, call, might as well call supply and demand. So on the demand side, um, Economics 101 and the way we talk about economics in today's world, and economics has certainly become much more prominent in the past 30 years than when I was a kid, um, leads people, it, it makes people very susceptible to these kinds of arguments that, you know, all that matters is incentives and, and uh, you know, let markets do their thing and, and the world will become a better place. And then on the other side, I think the thing to look at is who benefits from these kinds of arguments. So uh, the subtitle of the book is Bad Economics and the Rise of Inequality. 
because for the most part, um, people who benefit from the economics 101 view of the world are big businesses and the wealthy. And it's, this is no secret. You know, for the last 60 years, the American conservative movement has largely been supported by a large segment of big business and by the wealthy. And their crusade has been to uh, make government smaller, reduce the amount of government intervention in the economy, and essentially just let free markets generate whatever results they will generate. So I think what's happened historically is that these Economics 101 ideas uh, were developed and propagated and, in a sense, industrialized by a lot of think tanks and uh, publications, media outlets, that were financed in large part by conservative uh, foundations. Because the basic idea is that I think these entrepreneurs, political and intellectual entrepreneurs, recognized the power of Economics 101 as an ideological tool and invested a lot of money and resources and time in taking those ideas and turning them into a, a potent political ideology. Wow. So um, this is this is starting to sound uh, almost like it's getting into conspiracy theory territory. Uh, but it it's def- it it sounds like there's a lot of evidence to back it up that propagating these ideas benefits a certain segment of the population, but uh, not others. Yeah. So I don't mean to sound conspiratorial at all. So just thinking historically. Um, some of the economists who are best known for propagating and making uh, free market ideas successful in the United States were, one was Friedrich Hayek, who worked in uh, the United Kingdom, and probably the most important was Milton Friedman, an economist at the University of Chicago for a long time. And in the 1950s, they very much saw themselves as lone voices in the wilderness, because in the 1950s, the United States kind of political and intellectual climate was largely dominated by the New Deal. So Dwight Eisenhower was president. He was a Republican, of course, but, but Eisenhower was completely reconciled to the New Deal, to the idea that, that you would have an interventionist government. And people like Friedman uh, developed these ideas that essentially unregulated free markets would produce better outcomes than government policies. And they were adopted um, by politicians beginning with Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan was a, was a fervent proponent of these ideas, and by, as I said, think tanks such as the American Enterprise Institute and Heritage and Cato and Manhattan and others. And the reason I say I, I don't mean this to be conspiratorial is this is entirely out in the open. I mean, these are right. organizations that say we believe that free markets are, uh, will generate prosperity for all Americans. Uh, some of the policies that they they favored, you know, the simplest would be lower taxes um, and lo- and less government regulation directly benefit um, the wealthy who pay the most taxes and businesses who face the most uh, regulation. So I don't mean to say this was in bad faith. Uh, what I mean to say is there was this great confluence of of, uh, of interests between these these large interest groups and these ideas that were very convenient and very helpful for them. So one of the things that you say in your book is that material prosperity should not be society's overriding goal. So we're really talking at this point about uh, people with different goals and different ideas of what to aim for and what to uh, point our economic policies for. And you, you think we've been going in the wrong direction. Tell us about that. Well, I think there are two aspects to that, uh, to that point I make. One is that material prosperity typically is defined in terms of gross domestic product. So if you look at the kind of main numbers that people look at when they look at the United States economy, number one is the rate of growth of gross domestic product, which means uh, the total amount of stuff that we produce, goods and services, how much is that growing from year to year. And so one, uh, one critique is that, well, one is that gross domestic product doesn't necessarily measure the things that produce prosperity very well, uh, just to give the kind of the simplest example, if one company dumps a lot of pollution into a river uh, while making products, those products count as part of GDP. And then if another company cleans the, the pollution out of that river, uh, the work they do to clean up the river also counts as part of, part of GDP. Mm-hmm. More, broad, more broadly, though, I think one of the issues is that 
Uh, we've been looking at, with GDP, we're looking at the total size of the pie. And so we're not looking at how the pie is distributed among people. And so there's, I guess, two things. The first point is that it's kind of intuitive to most people, not to all economists, but to most people, that additional dollars of income or wealth um, have a greater benefit on the lives of, for the lives of poor people than rich people. So what this means is that if you have a situation where the economy is growing, but the vast majority of the gains are going to extremely rich people who don't really need more money, uh, that economic growth is not particularly making society uh, better off. So that's the main, the main sense in which I may mean that point. Uh, the secondary sense, the second sense is that you know, there's separately a lot of evidence, a lot of it produced by economists as well as psychologists, that past a certain point, <laughs> um, having more money, having more wealth doesn't actually increase people's well-being. Uh, insofar as we can measure that directly. And so I think, again, over the past half century, economics has become really the dominant social science in America. If you just look at what people talk about, what's discussed in the media by politicians and so on, um, we may, you know, at some point in the next century, be reaching a point when really the thing we should worry about is no longer the amount of material stuff we have, and there are more important goals for society to focus on. So let's now talk about this rise of, of inequality. How has okay. that played out? Well, so inequality has obviously become a very, um, you know, important topic of discussion in the past five to ten years. And uh, just to mention a couple names, um, Thomas Piketty's book from about two or three years ago, um, Capitalism, uh, sorry, Capital in the 21st Century, was a, a major contributor to that. Uh, another book by... Anthony Atkinson about inequality and economist what was very influential. So two things have happened, I think. One is that uh, economists have gotten much better at actually studying inequality, and part of that is simply due to the work of people like Piketty and Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, who have found, who have basically been able to analyze detailed tax records uh, provided by the, the IRS, because at the very high end, wealth is concentrated among so few people that unless you can actually see tax records, you can't, you can't get a good picture of who owns what relying just on surveys. Mm. And the basic idea is that if you have a survey of a thousand people, which is good for, enough for most purposes, that might have zero billionaires in it. It probably has zero billionaires in it. So they are, they're underrepresented in most surveys. Um, so one thing is we just know... Uh, more today than we did even 10 years ago about the distribution of income and the distribution of wealth. And that's the that's why we have all these charts that have become famous just in the past few years, essentially showing the income share or the wealth share of, wealth share of the top 0.1% of top 0.01%. And that's why we can say things like, uh, over the past you know 20 years, the economy has grown, but the average income of the bottom 90% has essentially been flat. And then the gains have been concentrated entirely at the top end. So that research has helped make this a, an important uh, issue. And then the second thing I think that's happened is people have, have been looking, now that we know that the gains of economic growth are not being shared broadly at all, a lot more attention has been paid to why that is. So as I said, for certain, to simplify, for a while what people thought about was how can we make the, the pie grow as a whole? Now we're getting more concerned about the division of the pie. And so people are, are thinking more about things like monopolies and antitrust regulation um, as one reason why, uh, you know, you have, you have uh, larger companies that are able to, uh, the phrase is, extract rents from consumers. We've had a decline of unions, which makes it harder for people to, harder for workers to claim their share of, uh, you know, of the, surpluses generated by corporations and so on. So we've had these, these uh, developments in the U.S. economy that have contributed to you know, less uh, power of labor, less, um, less benefits for consumers, and a greater concentration of benefits for corporations and their shareholders who largely tend to be the well-off. So I think, just to summarize, we know a lot more about inequality, and I think people are much more interested now in the causes of that inequality. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. 
Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with James Kwok, author of Economism. Now, you are a business law professor at the University of Connecticut. Um, What's your firsthand experience of how these ideas spread? Do you encounter a lot of these, this misinformation and these uh, economics 101 ideas in your students? So I don't necessarily hear those ideas so much from my my students, who are still relatively, um, their ideas are not fully formed yet. But I would say I, I became aware of these kinds of ideas more during my business career. So before going to law school, I was a management consultant and worked for a software company and another software company. And one thing one hears a lot in the business world is this idea that, you know, um, the social problems that our country country faces could be solved if we ran the country more like a business and that business people know how to, you know, understand real issues and solve real problems. And to some extent, we've seen that with the election of of Donald Trump as our next uh, president. And I think that... uh, Often what one hears is that, you know, complicated ideas can be reduced to simple economic principles, as I said, such as you know, supply and demand and competitive markets produce optimal outcomes. And so before I went into the business world, I was a, a graduate student in history. I got a Ph.D. And I, I've just always had the sense that the world is a lot more complicated uh, than it appears in you know, in the models in an introductory economic class, economics class or an introductory class in, in any subject uh, that is. And then, so that's, I think, where the, you know, the, the initial impetus for this, this uh, book came from. And then secondly, during the financial crisis, that was when I became a blogger and wrote, wrote my first book with Simon Johnson, 13 Bankers. And at that time also, uh, the main topic I focused on then was financial regulation. And one of the main arguments of essentially banks who opposed financial regulation was, look, you guys just don't understand. Uh, there are these economic laws at work. You know, if you increase regulations for us or if you make us raise more capital, we're just going to lend less money because supply and demand, yada, yada, yada. And one thing I saw was the extent to which these you know, textbook simple arguments were being used essentially to protect the economic interests of this industry, when in fact financial regulation is much more complicated. So that's essentially when I first got, you know, when I became more, let's say, annoyed by this phenomenon (laughs) that I call economism. And since then, I think I've just seen it operate in more and more uh, fields. So what can we do about this? How, what, what ideas can we spread? You know, the simple idea is always the very seductive one, the one that you can, you can just say supply and demand, the invisible hand of the market. You know, people can, yeah. can just um, spread these, these memes. Um, and the complicated idea has, always has an uphill battle to compete with that. So what can we do about that? That is a tough question. I mean, so one of the things I... Uh, one of my throwaway lines I like to say is that in the end of the day, the only two things that matter are early childhood education and campaign finance reform, right? Because we need a, basically we need, uh, you know, a, an electorate that's better at critical thinking and we need money out of politics. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a pretty straightforward answer. Actually. One, <laughs> one is that, that we need, um, one of the purposes of the book is to try to inoculate people against economism. Uh, and that's why I try to explain this is how supply and demand arguments work. There's a little, you know, economics one one primer in there. And then I try to explain why these arguments don't necessarily hold in the real world in various domains, almost so that it's almost to solve a cocktail party problem. The cocktail party problem is this. You have some progressive, you know, young kid, um, a Bernie Sanders supporter, let's say, 
And let, well, let's, let's say it's not a cocktail party. You're at Thanksgiving dinner with their <laughs> uncle, who's a businessman, and the uncle says, "No, it's just economics. You don't understand. You're going to make life worse for everyone." And I want people to understand that there are two sides to these stories. That there are no fundamental laws of economics that apply everywhere. And I think that's something that we can do. The, the thing that I would say I am less good at, but I would like someone to do, is I think we need, as you say, you can't comp, you can't fight a simple story with a complicated story. So we need a simple story about how the economy works and how the economy should work, uh, other than free markets generate prosperity. And as I said, uh, that's something I don't know if I have the talents for. One, I would say, one source of inspiration could be Franklin Roosevelt. So if, if you look at some of the speeches Franklin Roosevelt gave about the economy, he talked to, the main things he talked about were jobs and fairness. He didn't really talk about the size of the pie. Uh, now, he was president at a time when uh, there very, many people did not have jobs, and there was this huge sense of unfairness about economic outcomes. We are not at that point yet. Hopefully, frankly, we will never get to that point of having a quarter of the country unemployed. Mm. But people, uh, you know, people respond to different ideas. And, uh, you know, we, the country, the Democratic Party, somebody uh, needs to be able to come up with a compelling message other than uh, market forces will make everyone better off. So you co-wrote with Simon Johnson the 2010 book, uh, 13 Bankers, The Wall Street Takeover and the Next Financial Meltdown. Tell us about that and how things have uh, shifted in the years since that book. Okay, so that was a largely a financial crisis book. And the, the, there were a lot of financial crisis books, as you may mm-hmm. recall. And what we tried to add to the conversation was essentially a political dimension. So what we talked about, you know, we gave a history of the development of the financial industry and why it led to the financial crisis. And our perspective was less. It was that you can't just look at the financial sector in isolation as an economic phenomenon. What happened was that the sector was able to obtain some deregulatory measures in Washington, which enable it to to make more money, become more concentrated, and that gave it political power. And the political power, which was wielded in many forms, um, helped secure further deregulation and so on, to the point where we had this very large, very unregulated, very dangerous financial system. And one of the points that Simon and I wanted to make was that, look, you can't solve this problem just by tweaking the rules of the financial system. You need to deal with this problem of concentration and political power. This is really an antitrust problem, even though antitrust law, as currently formulated, wouldn't really allow you to do anything about these banks. That was our point. Um, I would say that um, what's happened since then, I would say it's too early to tell about the Dodd-Frank Act. I mean, my, my belief is still that it helped around the edges a lot of ways, but did not really eliminate the possibility of another cataclysmic financial crisis. What I would say, the app, how that book um, applies to the years since then, is I would say that since then we've seen increasing concentration and power, both economic and political, in a number of different industries. The one that I guess people were most aware of recently is pharmaceuticals with Mylan. Mm. Uh, here you have this company right, which benefits, you know, benefits from government research essentially, uh, and a a patent and the you know excessive protections of the U.S. patent system to essentially charge whatever it wants for life-saving, uh, life-saving medicine. Um, so I think that people have been more cognizant of the fact that um, economic power is becoming very concentrated, and in many cases that's producing political power. Now, just to, to, to hazard a brief comment on, on the election last year, uh, certainly the idea that there is a shared economic and political elite that controls the world and is not sensitive to ordinary people. That was one of the messages that Donald Trump ran on and helped, I believe, get him elected. It is, of course, uh, more than ironic, it's catastrophic that, that Donald Trump epitomizes the problem himself. And if you look at his cabinet, which is full of billionaires and multimillionaires, uh, that only underlines uh, the problem. But I think this is a this is an issue that obviously Hillary Clinton was unable to, to run on. And again, uh, ironically and catastrophically, if it helped anyone, it helped Donald Trump. 
So um, another book that you wrote was White House Burning, The Founding Fathers, Our National Debt, and Why It Matters. National debt is something we hear a lot about and especially heard a lot about during the campaign. Um, tell, yeah. us, tell us a little bit about that, because I certainly feel like I don't really understand why it's uh, such a contentious point, why some people are very adamant that we should have no debt, why other people are very adamant that there is a, a purpose to the debt. Um, and and that it and that it has value in a way that you know, for example, an individual household having a lot of credit card debt does not. So so can you break that down for us? I can try. I think the underlying problem is is related to what I talk about in in economism. It's not quite the same. Um, it's a different set of economic concepts. But uh, so first of all, the idea that it's bad for households to go into debt. Therefore, it's bad for the government to go into debt, which is a large part of what you hear, mm-hmm. is very simple and very compelling and very easy to understand. Uh, virtually any economist would tell you that it, it, it doesn't true, and the ba- it's not true. And the basic reason it's not necessarily true is that households can't raise taxes on people. So the government can pay off its debts any time it wants by raising taxes. There could be consequences to that, but, but clearly... It's a different kind of uh, situation. White House Burning was a was uh, a book that I'm proud of, but did not have a natural audience because essentially the national debt debate is divided between, for the most part, um, at, especially at that time in 2012, between Republicans saying we have to slash spending, we this national debt is a huge problem. Um, you know, they almost shut down. They almost uh, let us uh, violate the debt ceiling over that in 2012. And on the other hand, Democrats saying the national debt is not something we should worry about today. We need to worry about economic growth. We should actually be borrowing more money and investing that in our economy. And so what Simon and I tried to write a write was we, we wrote a book saying the national debt is a significant long-term problem. And we need to address that problem in a relatively progressive uh, way. And as I said, that's that's a, a middle position, which for the most part is not a natural audience for. Because as you said, uh, you know, as you said, and as, as I said, the battle lines are pretty starkly drawn on that issue. Now, as to you know, as to whether or not the national debt is a good thing, uh, again, it's a complicated topic. Um, but essentially. The basic reason why, to some extent, it's, it could be a good thing is that the government can borrow money, could borrow, say, $1 trillion, and could, say, invest that in our nation's infrastructure, which needs about $1 trillion of investment uh, right now. And that investment could generate uh, more economic growth in the future, and that economic growth will provide higher taxes, more tax revenue in the future, which could pay for essentially pay the interest on the trillion dollars we just borrowed. So that's the kind of um, logic that applies to the debt. And unfortunately, that means that it's always a complicated question because it depends on what you're doing with uh, with the money. And again, it's it's just easier to, to have debates if you if you essentially if you just take one extreme position or the other. So what is your next project? What's the next concept you're going to tackle? You know, I'm one of these people, I'm not good at working on multiple things at once, so it's hard for me to start something until until I finish the previous thing. I would say that um, the thing that I most want to write about right now is I want to write about uh, inequality in the criminal justice system, mm. which has it's not has not been ever never been my primary field, but in a sense it's been my secondary field. I'm a board member of the Southern Center for Human Rights, which is a great organization in Atlanta that essentially fights inequality in the criminal justice system. We defend people on death row and do a lot of lawsuits about prison conditions and debtors' prisons and so on. And I think that, uh, so what I would like to do is I'd like to write a book about different aspects of inequality in the criminal justice system and talk both about some of the legal issues involved and also some of the you know, real-world consequences, both for the victims of the system and for society as a whole. I mean, we have we have a, a huge number of people who are less productive than they could be because they are in jail or because they have past convictions and can't get jobs 
and so on. So, you know, it's a bit of a change of a change of a path, but that's that's what I'd like to do next. Sounds fantastic. We've been talking with James Kwok. You can find his book, Economism, in stores right now. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 